Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jenny Kaplan, co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. It was two years ago, at the height of the 2018 election, that we first started this show. Amid a lot of dark news at the time, I wanted to highlight the stories of women running for the House in the 2018 midterms as stories of hope. Looking back, the darkness leading up to 2018 sort of looks like nothing compared to what's happening now. Good evening, everyone. I hope you're watching us safe and at home. Here in New York, the current American epicenter of this pandemic, and yet officials say the worst days are still to come. Calls for police reform are growing. The conversation about racism in America has gripped the world. 1.4 million workers claiming benefits for the first time last week. The White House deploys federal agents against protesters. The 2020 presidential campaign has fundamentally changed with candidates straining to reach voters virtually. This is going to be the greatest election disaster in history. And it appears based on these recordings that the president was deliberately downplaying this. This is a pandemic that has now taken the lives of nearly 200,000 Americans. And yet, once again, I'm inspired by the people who've decided in the face of all that 2020 has brought to step up and lead. As you may know, this journey was kickstarted by the fact that my own mom decided to run for Congress in North Carolina. While she didn't win back in 2018, I'm happy to report that she's stepping up again in 2020. More on that to come. The big news is we're back. This season, once again, we'll dive into the stories of women running for the House of Representatives. Our original plan was to do a full-on cross-country road trip, gathering stories on the ground. After the 2016 election, many people living on the coasts talked about feeling blindsided by the election results. I wanted to hit the road to avoid repeating that history. But like most well-laid 2020 plans, that one had to go. So instead, we're going to be hopping from state to state on a virtual road trip. I'm seeking answers to some big questions. How did 2016 and 2018 shape what's happening in 2020? How are candidates affected by COVID, protests, and the fact that it's a presidential election? Let's dive in. To start, let's take a quick trip down memory lane to 2018, the latest so-called year of the woman. What you've seen is in 2018, I would like to sort of think about the year of a woman as a year that changes politics going forward in ways that can't go backwards. So what happened in 2018 was a combination of Me Too, but also the historic number of women of color being elected to the House of Representatives, historic number of women now serving in the House of Representatives, just about a quarter, a little bit less than a quarter of the whole population of the House of Representatives. That's Wendy Schiller, one of my favorite professors I had at Brown University. She's the Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science, a professor of international public affairs and chair of the Department of Political Science. She's describing the 116th Congress, 
the cohort that was elected in 2018 and is still in office. It includes 101 women, making up 23.2% of the 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives. You want it to be population relative, which is 51%, but nonetheless, we're not going back. And when I say we, I mean American society is not going back. There are female governors, and there are so many women now in the House representing districts that are, yes, liberal and Democrat, but also Republican and conservative and moderate, and from very different backgrounds. So exactly the same way where it used to be an anomaly or maybe even like a circus act, let's just say, to have a woman or a person of color or a woman of color, now it's a nothing burger, which leads to a lot more questions about representation and the needs of women in particular. But that's what 2018 did. The big question now is whether those gains will stick. 2020 can build on that. And if Kamala Harris is elected VP, that will be certainly history making. But the real change, I think, gets cemented if the vast majority of the women elected in 2018 as first-year congresswomen get reelected. And that just changes the nature of the way we think about the U.S. House of Representatives forever. That's what we're going to talk about today. Can 2018 gains hold strong in 2020? Very slowly, we've moved towards a place where it feels increasingly normal to have women in office. Does that mean the end of the so-called years of the woman? Here's Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. I really hate the term, the year of the woman. First of all, I think it otherizes women. It's like they don't really belong in politics and they sort of get this year. And I think it also implies somehow that in one year, we're going to fix 200 plus years of women's underrepresentation in American politics. In other words, the fact that we're still calling out election cycles as years of the woman really reflects the work there is left to do in normalizing women in elected office. Here's Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge America, an organization that trains women to run for office. Ashanti's also the host of WMN's The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. We want to see every year more women running at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level. And this is going to be what we're going to see in 2020. We already see that there are record numbers, again, of women running for Congress. But we also have a record number of Black women running for Congress. So to see that it's also women of color who are running more, they're winning primaries more, it is a very exciting time. And I think this is what we want, though. We kind of want to retire the term year of the woman, because this is just going to become our norm, seeing women finally reach parity in Congress. So once again, more women are running than ever before. But that doesn't guarantee that we'll see gains overall. The number of Democratic women running for the House is the same as it was in 2018. The number of Republican women is higher than ever. And some of those Republican women are running against Democratic women. Here's Kelly Dittmar, a colleague of Debbie Walsh's. Kelly is an associate professor of political science at Rutgers Camden and the director of research and scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics. This is a great and really important point when we try to forecast the gains for women in this cycle. So one way to calculate gains is how many new women get elected. Then there's a what is the net gain? You know, if we lose women and gain women, do we end up with a relatively equal level of representation? And I think that is certainly possible. 
we already have a record number of all female, all women congressional contests. So over 40 this year, that's more than we had seen in the 2018 election cycle. And many of those all women races are in contests where a Democratic woman flipped a seat or won a seat for the first time in 2018. And so really the narratives to watch are on the Democratic side, can these incumbent women keep the seats they gained in 2018? And on the Republican side, can they do what Democrats did in 2018, which is challenge incumbents successfully? That brings us to the race we're talking about today. I'm Susan Wild, and I represent Pennsylvania 7. I'm the U.S. representative for this district. Susan was first elected to Congress in 2018. She had long imagined getting into politics. My predecessor, Charlie Dent, who was a Republican, announced that he was not going to run for re-election. By the time he finished, he was in for 14 years. That was an unexpected announcement. He was somewhat of a beloved congressman here, got a lot of votes on both sides of the aisle, was a true moderate for the most part. And um, I had long thought about running for public office. It had sort of always been a childhood ambition. And this opportunity presented itself at a time when I was least expecting it. But I almost immediately started contemplating a run. I, I talked to family members, I think, that night that we heard his announcement and was sort of mulling it over when I started to get approached by people throughout the community saying, would you consider running? Susan had been serving as city solicitor for Allentown, Pennsylvania, and got widespread name recognition after having to become the voice of the city. Her boss, the mayor of Allentown, was convicted of political corruption soon after Susan started on the job. His crimes had been committed before she started her role, and she became a key player in the investigation. With that, I attained quite a bit of visibility, and I think that's why people started reaching out to me, asking me about running. So the way I always term it is, it's kind of like standing on a dock, thinking about jumping into a really cold lake. And you know how you sort of teeter on the edge and then you either pull back completely or you just jump in. And I did that. I jumped into this race about 10 days after Charlie Dent announced that he was going to not seek re-election. And the race was a success. Susan beat her opponents to join the 116th Congress. The decision to run again this time around was a no-brainer. It was never even a thought not to run again. In two years, you could get a lot of very important things started, but you don't see a whole lot to finality just because of the way the, the system works. We've been working on some incredibly important things and I can't imagine not running to hold this seat so that I can keep working on them. But this election looks different. Even if we weren't in a global pandemic, 2020 would have been a horse of a different color for Susan. For one thing, her opponent this time is also a woman, Lisa Scheller, one of the record number of Republican women running to join the 117th House. So th there was a novelty aspect in 2018. Even in 2018, it still was a novelty to be running for a federal office as a woman. And not just here, but everywhere in the country, particularly in areas that had never had a female, which included my district. This year, I think there's a sense that it's 
much more quote unquote normal. I don't know what it feels like to run male against male, and I never will. But I suspected it that it feels pretty much the way it always felt when it was almost exclusively men running against men. I think the issues define the race much more than the gender. I don't know that that would have been the case in 2018, by the way. I think a lot has changed in four years just in terms of people's perception of females in elected office. And I think a lot of that has to do with the unprecedented number of women who were elected in 2018. It's become the new normal. Susan said that the fact that her opponent is a woman hasn't really changed much. What has changed a lot about the race is the fact that this is a presidential election year. In 2018, Pennsylvania was redistricted after a ruling by its Supreme Court that the districts were unfairly gerrymandered. The old district, what was then called District 15, went to President Trump in 2016 by eight points. The current district, now called District 7, went to Hillary Clinton by one point. It's a swing district in a swing state. That puts a lot more eyes on this race in 2020 than it did in 2018. I asked Susan if it feels different this time around. Oh, it sure does. And it really changes everything about the race. You know, we were in the midterms two years after Trump was elected in 2018. The issues were fairly well defined that people were concerned about. And as divided as we might have been, we certainly weren't as divided as we are right now as a country. Running in a presidential year, this is my first one, of course, you realize that many people, many more people are likely to turn out or at least want to vote. Of course, that doesn't take into account COVID and what that's going to do to voting, but they're much more motivated to vote. Let's put it that way. And you're also trying to reach a lot of people who only vote in presidential election years and essentially ignore midterms and local elections and that kind of thing. So it's almost a completely different animal than what it felt like in 2018. Back in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost Pennsylvania even after spending significant time, energy, and money in the state. Emphasis on Pennsylvania is certainly going to continue this time around, and that will impact candidates down ballot. Here's Debbie Walsh again. Well, if you're running in a swing state and you know that there's going to be a lot of resources coming into your state, for the top of the ticket. And so if the top of the ticket is successful in your state, that can help you. So if you're a Democrat running in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, you know that the Biden-Harris campaign, there will be money coming in, there will be ads, there will be a lot of work done to get out the vote and to get out the vote that will, you as a Democratic candidate will hope will resonate down ballot, right? That people will go in and vote for the Democrat at the top of the ticket and then just continue on down ballot. And the same is true on the Republican side. You know, you would hope if you are a Republican woman running that if money is getting poured into a state that some of the benefit, the residual benefit will help you. It will all ultimately depend on who wins in that state, who who really reaps the benefit of that. If you're running for Congress in a swing district in a presidential election year, your fate is likely tied to the fate of the person at the top of the ticket. If your politics align with the person at the top, that can be a great thing. If not, you're in trouble, particularly because typical forms of campaigning are essentially impossible in the time of COVID. 
that makes it harder to separate yourself from the louder national narrative. Here's Wendy Schiller again. If you're running a down ballot in a swing state, it's a blessing and a curse. So it's a blessing because there's a lot more media attention. So you can get the byproduct of a Biden visit, if you're a Democrat, for example, is that you'll get in that photo shot if he actually goes anywhere or that digital Zoom press conference, and you'll get some attention. And you'll also probably benefit from Democratic campaign spending on behalf of Biden in that state. The curse is that you are associated with the head of the ticket in a swing state. And that uh, right now is probably good for most Democrats, but not necessarily in every single district. And it's harder given the circumstances to disassociate from the top of the ticket in this environment because you're denied that retail politics, town hall, state fair kind of visits with constituents that you, you need to identify yourself as distinct from the party. That it looks today as if that's a bigger liability for the Republican Party than it is for the Democratic Party, but that's just a snapshot today. To get a sense of what that means for Susan Wilde, we'll talk about what's actually happening in her district and for her constituents after the break. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've been using at Wonder Media Network. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts all virtually and risk-free with no out-of-pocket costs. On bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates to promote a fundraiser for your community, and they'll take care of printing and shipping the finished product to your buyers. I worked with the Bonfire team to create a new Women Belong in the House t-shirt for all of you to campaign in and rock this election season, and I've been living in it ever since. Their fundraising features let you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales, and you can even send all proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. If you're a political campaign, Bonfire is also compliant with all campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. Bonfire is trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and Wonder Media Network. You can check out the Women Belong in the House t-shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. Make sure to tag me on Twitter, at Jenny M. Kaplan, in any pictures of you rocking your Women Belong in the House t-shirt. Or tag us at WMN.media on Instagram, wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. For many of us, it's now been months of working from home. That can make it hard to stay healthy, focused, and energized. Sakara helps you do just that. Sakara is a nutrition company that believes wellness begins with what you eat. Their signature nutrition program brings the transformational power of plant nutrition to your home in the form of fresh, plant-rich, ready-to-eat meals. Made with organic ingredients and powerful superfoods, each meal is expertly designed to boost immunity, improve energy, support gut health and digestion, and get skin glowing. In addition to their delicious meals, Sakara also offers daily essentials like supplements and herbal teas to complete your wellness routine and support overall health and vitality. To boost immunity, try their best-selling daily probiotic blend or detox water drops with pure chlorophyll. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their order when they go to sakara.com house or enter the code house at checkout. That's sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash house to get 20% off your order. Sakara.com slash house. So let's talk about Pennsylvania's 7th District, which the Cook Political Report identifies as a lean Democratic district with only a D plus one rating. Here's Representative Susan Wilde again. 
It is a district that has historically had roots in manufacturing, specifically Bethlehem Steel and Mack Trucks were the backbone of this district for many decades. And the district has evolved a lot over the last 20 to 30 years. The largest industry now is sort of a competition between advanced manufacturing and healthcare. We have two very large healthcare networks that are the largest employers collectively in, in the district. And it's gentrified considerably. It used to be much more of a hard scrabble working class district than it is now, but still, I would say, very strongly rooted in middle class values. Susan has seen these changes firsthand as a longtime resident of the area. So I have now lived in the Lehigh Valley for 32 years, which is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. I'm 63 years old, to put that in context. And I grew up as a military brat. My dad was career Air Force. I was born on an Air Force base in Wiesbaden, Germany. We lived there and in France until I was almost seven years old and then moved to the United States, where we just constantly traversed the country going from one duty station to another. So the longest I ever spent in any one school as I was growing up was two years. Prior to COVID, the issues Susan heard about most from her constituents were healthcare, education, and jobs, though not necessarily jobs in the way you might expect. When I first was running, the number one concern of everybody was health care, the cost of health care, making sure that pre-existing conditions were protected, that kind of thing. When I first got into office, those were issues, but I was hearing a whole lot from people about the cost of prescription drugs, which was something that was somewhat new to me. I didn't have con any conditions that required any expensive medications. So now as the representative for the area, I suddenly was hearing from all kinds of people, mostly with diabetes. For some reason, we have a very high rate of diabetes in this district. And so prescription drugs and the cost of them came into focus for me very early on, as well as the cost of education and equality in education, both at the K to 12 level and higher education. Those were pretty much my individual constituents that I was hearing from. But I also made regular tours of various places, industries, places of employment, that kind of thing, very early on in my term to get to know them. And so I went to a lot of manufacturing facilities. As I mentioned before, we have a lot of advanced manufacturing here. And by advanced manufacturing, I mean medical supplies, computer devices, that kind of thing. But as I went to all of these places, what I was hearing from all of them was, we can't find enough workers. We don't have enough of a workforce. We've got to develop more of a workforce, and it's not just bodies. It's also people with some basic skills. They didn't need four-year college degrees, but they needed some people with basic technical and vocational skills. So I started to turn my attention to enhancing that kind of training within our district. We have two really excellent community colleges as well as six four-year colleges. I got to know the community colleges very, very well, was truly impressed by the work that they do to prepare students for the jobs of the future and the jobs that really have high demand. So those were all the kinds of things I was really focused on until COVID hit. Since COVID, Susan's focus has shifted. She's still working on many of the same kinds of issues, but she's had to prioritize helping people in need right now, rather than building policy to help down the line. Obviously, 
jobs have become scarce. A lot of people have become unemployed. Interestingly, in the manufacturing world, some sectors of manufacturing are still hiring vigorously, particularly one company comes to mind, Orishur in our district, which is in the process of, well, they've already obtained an FDA approval and are bringing to market an at-home COVID test, which will probably be available early next year, and it's a rapid test. So because of what they work on, they are hiring and they've got many, many jobs open right now. Some other manufacturing has contracted, I mean, constricted really, when hospitals were not doing any elective procedures. The medical device industry really took a hit for a while, although I'm hearing from them that demand has picked back up. So anyway, long story short, the employment picture has been a mixed, much more of a mixed bag. I don't think we can lose sight of the things that I was talking about early on and the things we were focused on early on, because someday COVID's going to be over and we're going to go back to needing to really focus on getting people higher education of some sort. But having said that right now, my biggest focus has been bringing relief to the huge number of people who have suffered economic devastation because of COVID, whether it's a small business person, restaurants, we have a very vibrant local restaurant business, independently owned smaller restaurants, everything from pizza parlors to very high-end restaurants, one of which consistently wins the, the top billing in the James Beard Awards every year. So the restaurant industry is incredibly important here and has been virtually you know, eviscerated by COVID because of shutdowns and even under reopening plans have been very, very restricted. And then there are all the people who are just completely unemployed and aren't seeing any prospect of returning to work or so very far off. So right now, my principal focus has been on getting those people assistance and doing everything we can. And when I say we, I mean my entire team to make sure that they are aware of every possible resource that is out there make sure that the small businesses are being able to take advantage of the PPP loans and, and that kind of thing. That's where all of our focus has been. COVID-19 has forced people and politicians around the country to take a hard look at some of the nation's most systemic problems, from healthcare disparities to racism to education inequality and lack of internet access. These problems existed long before the coronavirus but the pandemic has increased the urgency with which these problems must be addressed. Here's Kelly Dittmar again. Well, it was interesting, right, because in some ways 2018 was very reactive because it was like this president and this party are trying to pull back all of the gains that the Obama administration made on health care, on economic equality, on racial equality, on immigrant rights. And we want to move us back in the direction of, in large part, the Obama administration. And so there was a sort of reaction to Trump and to the Republicans. But you're right, the conversations on how to move forward were much more aspirational. And it was much more reacting to a concern over an overall agenda. Now you're reacting to an immediate crisis, that this is affecting people every day. 
And so your, the terms of your campaign conversations also need to be very much based in the fact that voters don't necessarily want to hear about the plan you have for 10 years from now and how that's going to improve you know, the health infrastructure. What they want to know is, how am I going to get my COVID test? How are my kids going to get back to school? And how am I going to ensure that if I get sick, there's a ventilator for me and I can afford health care? Oh, and also, could you please keep me in my house because I don't have an income anymore and I might get evicted, right? I mean, so there are very, very real day-to-day -day things that more than ever are affecting the wider swath of the population. Because I don't want to discount that, obviously, in every election cycle, there are a lot of people dealing with these issues that are day-to-day. But now I think because it is the majority of the population, candidates really have to be more responsive to the immediate needs. The immediate need for change may lead to solutions that were previously seen as too out of the box for most politicians. So even, you know, for some of these candidates who may have never talked about universal basic income before, right? Like now this is a question because we're seeing possibly that in this moment that's an immediate solution, whereas otherwise they may have been less prone to, to discuss that as a, a sort of rash solution. And then the last thing is, I don't think we can separate any of these from conversations around racial injustice and social justice issues. And I think what, what a lot of you know, great candidates this cycle are doing is really connecting all of these things and saying that our conversations around racial justice and racial inequity are so intertwined with economic security and health care that we have to look at our whole set of policies and policy agendas with an eye to the long term and, and quite damaging racial disparities. Between the pandemic, the presidential election and social movements across the country, this 2020 election is unlike any other in American history. Throughout this season, we're going to talk about states and districts that could change the tide of the presidential election. We're going to talk to a mix of familiar and fresh voices to get a sense of what's happening on the ground. In this time of extreme trial, it's extraordinarily clear that having people from different backgrounds with a variety of different experiences is vital for good government. Here's Representative Susan Wilde again. The nice thing about having such a diverse group of people elected, and I'm not just talking about gender, I'm not talking about race, ethnicity, I'm talking about background. I mean, in our freshman class, we have everything ranging from helicopter pilots to nurses to teachers to small business owners, and I'm only talking about the women in the class. It brings a whole lot of different perspectives to Congress that I think is really healthy and really good. No matter what issue comes up, it's almost goes without saying that there's going to be somebody in our midst who has expertise in that field. So I just think that's the really fascinating thing about our group is not just that we had an unprecedented number of women, but that we really have an unprecedented array of skills and background and talent. Next time on Women Belong in the House, we're leaving Pennsylvania behind and heading further west to the great state of Illinois to speak with the one and only Lauren Underwood. We'll talk more about what it's like to run in 2020 amid historic challenges and changes across the country. We'll discuss the incumbency advantage and what it's like to lead a socially distanced campaign. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. 
It's executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, and produced by Grace Lynch. Special thanks to Louisa Garpowit. Original theme music by Miles Moran. Talk to you next week.